Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The sports rebel without a pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rose Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? It's a new day, a new week. The holidays are over. The ball is dropped. Time to take down the decorations as a new year has arrived. And here to deliver the very first podcast with all that's happening in the world of sports. As you come to the right place to listen to it all here on the J Reels Podcast. This is your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me for now 172 episodes, I welcome you guys back. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on all major platforms, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, Amazon Music. Or for more information, you could go to my website at www.jreels.com in reference to the podcast, archive shows, me, everything that you need to know about the podcast, you could also find it there. It is a Monday, January the 4th, in the year of our Lord, 2021. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What to expect here on this podcast is as follows. The national championship game in college football is set for a week from today between Alabama, no surprise there, and Ohio State, mild surprise, as we'll discuss the semifinal playoffs that took place there on New Year's Day and look ahead to the big game a week from tonight down in Miami at the Hard Rock Stadium. As for baseball, we are now into January, which means... No new signings. Trevor Bauer, DJ LeMayhew, Marcelo Zuna. The list goes on and on. Nothing to report as far as any major blockbuster signings. But there was a trade last week by the San Diego Padres. And no, not Blake Snell. Another starting pitcher goes from the Midwest to Southern California. I'll touch on that. As well as the Med fan. I need to pull them off the ledge in reference to Steve Cohen and why they haven't gone full bore as far as any of these free agents. George Springer included, I might add. So I'll keep the blood pressure down low for those Met fans wondering, why haven't we signed anybody? They need to relax on that. Later on, I'll get into that. As well as the NBA, I know Katie and Kyrie couldn't get a game-winning shot off last night against Washington. No big whoop there. But a couple of other takes, whether it's Paul George hearing a lot of chirping from other players in the league, some of that may be deserved, but I'll delve into that later on, as well as some thoughts on the NHL season, which starts a week from this coming Wednesday Whereas Dano Chara leaves Boston to go to Washington to play for the Capitals. And even Jonathan Taze has this illness which we'll get into throughout the course of this podcast. As well as my hero and zero of the week. But I'm going to start off this podcast obviously with the NFL. But the theme before we even get into all the games yesterday and the upcoming wildcard weekend. Or what they're calling it as super wildcard weekend. Which rightfully so. You have six games. First time in NFL history. Three games Saturday, three games Sunday. But before we get to all that, but we have to give Roger Cadell and company a huge ovation for pulling off these 17 weeks in an NFL season, which looked very dicey at some points, whether you're early on in the season with Tennessee, moving games around, Cam Newton coming down with COVID there 
in week two or three where they had to go up against the Kansas City Chiefs, which was an early season matchup, not knowing what the Patriots were going to be after these 17 weeks, seven and nine out of the playoff picture. But with everything that transpired and all the maneuvering, all the shifting, especially around that time during the Thanksgiving week where they had to move to steal a game three times and play three games in 12 days, all the COVID cases throughout the course of the year, and being able to navigate those minefields, you have to give them kudos. Now, it's not a surprise that they had to go above and beyond to do whatever it took to get this season in the books. You knew that there was no way, barring anything major, as far as top quarterbacks in the league going down, which you didn't see other than the aforementioned Cam Newton, but you didn't have your Aaron Rodgers, your Patrick Mahomeses, your Josh Allens. I go down the list. You didn't have those guys on the shelf for any extended period of time to where games were going to be compromised. But this is the battle they now face moving forward as the playoffs loom just five days away. But we'll talk about that later on. I just want to commend the NFL for getting this season in and for doing whatever it took. Even though it was not a surprise, even though you knew that they were going to, by hook or by crook, get this season in no matter how it was going to be performed, as you saw there during that Thanksgiving period with the Steelers, that they had to get these games in. And now we could concentrate and look ahead to see who will be crowned. Super Bowl 55, five weeks from yesterday, down in Tampa, where the game will be played. So now that they've gone unscathed, and even though they went through some bumps and bruises this past week, where Alvin Kamara had to be put on the COVID list, and although they didn't need him yesterday against Carolina, to the tune of a 33-7 victory. On a lesser note, Joe Hayden, the cornerback of the Pittsburgh Steelers, also out with COVID. Who knows what his status will be for the game come Sunday night against Cleveland. Also, speaking of Cleveland, you had a bunch of players and also personnel come down with COVID where they had to close the facility four times just this past week. So even though the NFL has made it to the regular season finish line, Now, let's see if there are going to be any obstacles that they're going to have to overcome, whether they have to go around them, above them, or through them. So, we still have to hold our collective breaths because we do not know what's going to take place between now and this coming Saturday. As it is right now, with the status of both Alvin Kamara and even Joe Hayden, granted they're not quarterbacks, but they're key components to their teams as far as trying to make that long postseason run that both of these organizations are looking forward to. We'll keep our eye on that as we get deeper into the week and just hope and pray that everybody is healthy, ready to go, and that nothing is compromised, especially now as we have our sights set on a run to the Super Bowl. And before I get to Week 17, I'm going to preview the Wild Card Weekend, of course, but I'm going to say this right now. The AFC games by far are much better than the NFC games. And I know you can look at the Washington football team being there at 7-9 and and they're going to have to host Tampa Bay. They'll be the Saturday night game. And then you look at another rematch between the Rams and Seattle Seahawks, which you saw just a week ago, a week ago yesterday. And to top that off with the Bears backing into the postseason at 8-8 and to play the New Orleans Saints. We know it's NFL playoff football. Everybody's going to rally around it. They're going to watch closely. Of course, I will too. But in comparison to the AFC games, it is night and day. You start off with Indianapolis at Buffalo, who made it to the postseason with their win yesterday and the Dolphins losing. 
You also have the rematch of the divisional round game last year. And this will be the third time in the last 12 months that the Ravens and Titans will lock horns. And in this case, the game will be down in Tennessee. I'm sure all this week, they're going to use the divisional playoff game last year as fuel to get them through this game. And with Tennessee coming off of a an emotional win yesterday, 250 yards by Derrick Henry, using every last drop an ounce just to win that game and they had a big lead but the Ravens are going to look to see if they could get themselves on that run that they should have had last year 12 straight heading into the postseason and then losing that game in just terrible fashion at home to a 30-12 to loss I know that that right there is going to be fuel enough for them to get deep into this postseason and not only that but also to make amends for Lamar Jackson's MVP season pretty much going up in smoke Saturday night there last year in that divisional round in mid-January. And then you highlight the Browns and Steelers, the Sunday night game, which will cap off the wildcard weekend. We'll get to all that later on, but I just wanted to give you a little theme and give you a little tune and idea as to what direction I'm going when we preview these wildcard games. And then yesterday, I'm not going to go through every game. I'm just going to go through the games that matter. But as always... For the last time, especially in the regular season, because come postseason, unless barring anything crazy, we're not going to go through winners and losers. But my winners of Week 17, and I have to give them kudos. First up is the Cleveland Browns, an 18-year playoff drought. We know the list of coaches, quarterbacks, just the mediocrity, and not only that, the low-average play that we've seen from this organization to the tune of not winning a game a few years back. That two-year tenure where Hugh Jackson was 1-31. and And now here they are into the postseason for the first time since the 2002 season. I understand it came at the expense of my Pittsburgh Steelers. So what? So first off, I want to give them a congratulatory entrance into the postseason. And we'll get into the game later on as far as they're concerned. Now they had to sweat it out to win this game. And I don't know if that's going to bode well for the Browns as they look ahead to their game against the Steelers next Sunday night. But be that as it may, as of right now... 11-5, made it to the postseason. Congratulations to them. My second winner are the Indianapolis Colts. Knowing that the Dolphins lost against the Buffalo Bills, that was going to be their only chance to get into the postseason because they needed one of four teams to lose yesterday, which meant Tennessee, Miami, Baltimore, Cleveland. And with Tennessee fighting tooth and nail to get to the end, to get to the finish line, they were able to Put up 253 yards by Jonathan Taylor, the rookie out of Wisconsin. They were able to avenge that opening day loss in Jacksonville, the only win that the Jaguars had throughout this 2020 season. And the Colts were able to get into the postseason as the seventh seed in the AFC. So congratulations to them. And then lastly, on my winner's list, and it's set back football 60 years, but give it up to the Washington football team and what they did in winning in Philadelphia. And that was controversial in its own right because... For the Giant fan who won against the Dallas Cowboys yesterday and were hoping for a Washingtonian loss to the Eagles for them to win a division at 6-10 and and make it to the postseason, well, they did not get their wish. And with the way Doug Peterson coached that game, it was almost as if he wanted to coach his way out of Philadelphia because bringing in Nate Sudfeld, I get that Jalen Hurts was not effective in the game and missed on a lot of throws. But to bring in Sudfeld late in the game when it was still hanging in the balance, even at 17-14 and then at 20-14, to and even getting turnovers deep in Washington territory, they weren't able to move the ball an inch. And it made you wonder whether or not that Peterson was just ready to pack his bags and leave Philadelphia, 
or give them an easy out for them to just say good riddance and goodbye, but thanks for the Super Bowl a few years back. So the Washingtonians do win a division at 7-9, and and they will host Tampa Saturday night in primetime there on NBC. And with Ron Rivera and everything that they've had to go through with his health and with the way the team started to falter down the stretch, especially after winning those two big games in Pittsburgh and then against San Francisco, to lose at home to Seattle, then to Carolina, the Dwayne Haskins saga with the strip club and his girlfriend's birthday party and having to release him. And who knows if Alex Smith was going to come back and play in this final game, in which he did. He had his moments. He wasn't great, but he did just enough for them to win the division. But it was all credited on that defense led by Chase Young, the rookie standout from Ohio State. So congratulations to the Washingtonians for making it to the postseason. And as far as my losers are concerned, the first loser is the Dallas Cowboys. Here they were teasing their fans at 3-9. and nine. And I get that even with their record at 6-9 and nine, going into the game against the Giants yesterday. And I'm sure a lot of them felt that, hey, let's make it to the playoffs. You never know. Maybe we could steal a game. I get that it'll be against Tom Brady. But in the postseason, you never know. So after that loss in Baltimore on that Tuesday night, because remember, that was a Thursday night game where they had to move. They win against the 49ers. Then they win against the Bengals. And top it off with the game against Philadelphia last week. And here they were primed to put themselves in a position to win a division. And even though they wouldn't have won a division, because based on what happened there with the Washingtonians later that evening, but for them to put up that stinker and to set themselves up at first and goal down 23-19 and then Andy Dalton does the most rookie move of a quarterback that could ever happen to go against his body. I get that he doesn't want to take a sack there, but he throws it up for grabs. It gets intercepted. And it was almost life even after that when Wayne Gallman fumbled the ball. It looked like the Cowboys recovered, but he ended up recovering the ball. Gallman, that is. And the Dallas Cowboys go meekly into the NFL offseason in just crushing fashion. So, I don't know what else to say. I got nothing against the Cowboys. I'm tired of Stephen A. Smith with his stupid cowboy hat and a cigar. Could you concentrate on the Cleveland Browns if you're a Steeler fan? I understand he gets under the Cowboy fan skin, and that's his MO, and that's what he wants to do. But please, the team, even if they would have made it to the postseason, so what? Or even if they would have won the game, they wouldn't have made it to the playoffs. And what was he going to do? Laugh at them afterwards because the Washingtonians ended up winning. So, ha, 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 there goes the Cowboys off into the night not having to deal with them until September? Yeah, give me a break. But anyway, with that being said, they're my number one loser. And my number two loser are the Miami Dolphins. They had destiny in their own hands. I understand they're going up against a hot Buffalo Bills team that want to continue to just be the offensive juggernaut that they've been here over the last few weeks. And they put up 56 on them. Mind you, Ryan Fitzpatrick was not available to play in this game due to COVID. So that was a huge loss for them because it's not as if you could bring them out of the bullpen if your team is down. And mind you, they were leading in the game early, but then the Bills put up 28 points in the second quarter and they never looked back from there. And it was a shame because Tua had to do this all on his own, which I think will be a good learning process for him. Granted that it came at the expense of a playoff spot, but give the Dolphins credit despite 10-6, 10-6, and six, not making it to the postseason, having that miraculous win in Las Vegas the week before, but for them to just not even show up, give up 56 points, I get it's a tough spot on the road again in Buffalo. It wasn't your typical 20 degrees with a wind chill and the single digits and snow all over the field, 
But for them to put up that stinker, and even for them not to have Ryan Fitzpatrick there, they still have to end up on my loser of the week. But if there is a silver lining, I think that this would be a good experience, not only for the head coach, Brian Flores, but even for the young quarterback moving forward. And who knows? They have the number three overall pick in this upcoming draft. And would you not be surprised if they go and get that home run hitter from Alabama and a one Devontae Smith, and we'll talk about him later on, to reunite with Tua Tagovailoa? Because as we know, they do not have any explosive home run hitters, especially in the wide opposition. And what better prize would be as a number three overall pick for the Dolphins to select a one Devontae Smith. So that will be for April and down the road. But for right now, the Dolphins are my second loser of the week. And when we look at the slate on week 17, and I'm going to breeze through these people because I want to get to the wild card and break that down because I find the AFC games fascinating. We'll start with the AFC from the top on down. No need to get into the Chargers winning in Kansas City. They rested Mahomes, rested their top players, rightfully so. They had the number one seed locked up, so no worries about the Chiefs, although I do have a word on them later on when I get to the storylines of the postseason. We have the Bills, as I mentioned, beating the Dolphins, kicking them out of the postseason, so they locked in the number two seed. Pittsburgh losing the Cleveland yesterday. That was a game that Cleveland had to hang on for dear life to win this game. And mind you, no Ben Roethlisberger, no TJ Watt, no Marquise Pouncey, no Cameron Hayward, and they had to have a two-point conversion not be completed by the Steelers there at the very end in order for it to be tied So I don't know if that bodes well for the Browns, but the Steelers did play well, even with Mason Rudolph. I know he had the one bad interception, which led to points. And mind you, he did got clubbed in the head, which should have been a roughing the passer. But of course, they overlooked that, maybe because it was Mason Rudolph. It doesn't matter. I I could be a quarterback. If I get hit in the head, the flag has to be thrown. I'm sorry. But the Steelers were valiant, even in a loss, not trying to put any sort of moral victory to that. But the Steelers have the number three seed locked up, even in a loss yesterday to the Browns. Tennessee wins the division, like I said. They had a lead 24-9 in this game, and then Houston came roaring back to Sean Watson, who put up 4,800 passing yards throughout the season, which led the NFL. Stormed back. There was a point in the game at 31-28. I don't know what in the hell Mike Vrabel was thinking early in the fourth quarter as he went for it for fourth and 11 on his, it was actually on the Houston, I want to say 41-yard line. So instead of punting there, he actually went for it. Tannehill gets sacked. The Texans go down, score a touchdown to make it 35-31. to And it made me think, there's no way that Tennessee is going to win this game based on that series of events there early in the fourth quarter. But too much Derrick Henry. They're able to take the lead. Houston then kicks a field goal to tie the game there late and then I don't know what the secondary was thinking on that long bomb from Ryan Tannehill to A.J. Brown which set up the game winning field goal by Scott Sloman the guy who was pretty much off the street and even with the 250 yards on 34 carries by Derrick Henry the 8th player in NFL history to rush for 2,000 yards in the season they were able to squeak by and win the division 41-38 the Texans lose another crusher at the buzzer and then on top of that their number one pick has to go to the Dolphins. It was number three overall. So you can only imagine. Talk about insult to injury. So Tennessee wins the division where they will host the Ravens who crushed Cincinnati yesterday. And I was hoping Cincinnati would be a little bit competitive in this game, but obviously they were not. Lamar Jackson rushed for a thousand yards, not in the game, of course, but for a season. Back-to-back years by a quarterback. First time ever in history, if you want to hang your hat on that as far as records go. 
But the Ravens are now rolling into this postseason with five straight victories as they go to Tennessee to play the Titans there this coming Sunday afternoon. We already talked about the Browns and their victory. Obviously, we talked about the Colts and Miami losing. So that's pretty much your AFC picture there. As far as the NFC goes, Green Bay and Chicago. Chicago, as I said, backed into the postseason because they lost to the Packers. Packers were... Dominant from the start, even though the Bears were in the game there, 21-13, and even at 21-16, they weren't able to convert there when they had a first and goal. Mitchell Trubisky, at 21-16, when they needed to convert on a fourth down, incomplete, and then away they went, the Packers, that is, to cruise to a 35-16 game. So the Packers have the one seed all locked up for Aaron Rodgers as he looks to get back to a Super Bowl, and we'll get to the Packers in a little bit when we get to our storylines for the postseason. So they're all set. The Saints winning in Carolina cement their two seed in the NFC where the Seahawks had to come back against the 49ers and win 26-23. They're behind Russell Wilson. Their offense was sputtering all afternoon until they finally got a jump started there in the fourth quarter. They were down 16-6 in the game but put up 20 points in that final frame for them to get the three seed. We talked about the Washingtonians and, and that game was just, oh my goodness. I, I couldn't believe watching that game. It just seemed like the first two and a half quarters zoomed by and then the final five minutes took about five hours. But as I said before, congratulations to them. They end up winning and will host against Tampa, as I've said before. As for the Buccaneers, they win their final four games to close out the regular season, 11-5, and five as they beat the Atlanta Falcons, who were pretty much game in this contest, but not enough as Tom Brady threw the ball over the lot again. Remember, he had 340 yards at halftime that game against Detroit. Yesterday, he throws for 399. Mike Evans, we don't know about his knee, who, another milestone, first wide receiver in NFL history to have 1,000 yards in each of his first seven seasons, but he left the game with a knee injury. They say there's nothing structural as of right now, but he's probably going to be a game-time decision. But as we all know, they have weapons everywhere with Chris Godwin. Antonio Brown had a couple of touchdowns yesterday and aging Gronk. So even though Mike Evans, they're going to need him in the lineup in the postseason at some point, whether it be here in this wildcard game or even further if they happen to advance. But something to keep an eye on there as far as the Buccaneers go. So they cruise into the postseason with those four straight victories and we'll see what happens there Saturday night in the nation's capital. Then you had the Rams against the Arizona Cardinals in a game that if the Rams win, they will automatically be in. And if the Cardinals win, they would need help with the Bears losing. And with the Bears losing, you would think, all right, this is going to be a moment where the Cardinals going up against not Jared Goff, but John Wofford, where the Cardinals had an opportunity to get themselves in the postseason They had a great start to the year. The miraculous Hale Murray where Kyler Murray threw that touchdown pass at the end to DeAndre Hopkins. It was 6-3 at that point. And since then, they have been floundering. And now they had a golden opportunity to go ahead to try to get this victory. And then in hopes, because both of those games were being played at the same time with the Bears losing, that they would make it into the postseason. But that wasn't to be. They did have a 7-0 lead early. Kyler Murray had to leave the game with an ankle injury. They had the backup who I never heard of in Chris Strebler, who in the biggest play of the game at 7-5, to five, right before the half, throws that pick to Troy Hill, who takes it back to the house. And even though the game was a bore pretty much second half, 
but Wofford did just enough to manage the game. And even with Kyler Murray coming back in the fourth quarter, did make a couple of plays. They actually had an opportunity at first and goal down 15-7 to get themselves into the game. But they came away with no points, and that was pretty much it. And I get that the Arizona Cardinals, a lot of things were expected out of them in year two with the Cliff Kingsbury coach and Kyler Murray quarterback marriage. And I saw people pounding them on social media, but but give that tandem a little room to breathe here. I could see that this was year four, year five, and they were expected to win a division. And granted, they got off to that great start, and you would think that they were going to be part of the postseason to have that young duo maybe be the, I'm not going to say future of the league, that's a little too strong. But when you do have a young coach and quarterback in tow, big things could possibly be in the future or on the horizon. It just wasn't meant to be this year. Now, next year is going to be a whole different other story because there's going to be some expectations there. We got to see what they do this offseason, but just a tough way to end the season for the Arizona Cardinals. And then the Rams win, they'll go to Seattle to face them again for the second time in three weeks as we get the playoffs underway this coming weekend. And that's pretty much it. I'm not going to get to some of these other games. Does anybody really care about Minnesota, Detroit, or the Jets in New England? I rest my case. So there's your NFL Week 17. But one other milestone I forgot is Justin Jefferson, the wide receiver from the Vikings who has the Super Bowl era record for most receiving yards by a rookie. I believe it was 14-35. That was the record which eclipsed Anquan Bolden back in 2002. So congratulations to him as he certainly has a bright future in Minnesota. But right now, here we are on a Monday And Black Monday, as everybody knows, is the day after the NFL season where coaches are on the firing line. And Black Monday came early for one Adam Gase to no surprise as he was let go of his duty as head coach of the Jets after the loss to the New England Patriots yesterday. And then just a little while ago, Doug Marone of the Jacksonville Jaguars was shown the door as he received his pink slip for his 1-15 season. Now it's interesting because with Trevor Lawrence expected to leave college and declare himself for the NFL draft, whomever Shad Khan, the owner of the Jaguars, and this is going to be a big hire for this organization because as we know, the Jaguars have been awful minus the one year, a few years back when they went to the AFC championship game. But pretty much since the days of Mark Brunel, Tony Baselli, Keenan McCardle, Jimmy Smith, go down the line, Fred Taylor, this team has absolutely done zero. All right, you want to throw in a couple of Byron Leftwich years when they won a wildcard game in Pittsburgh and then went to Jacksonville. Okay, I'll give you that. But pretty much going back to their inception, they have done absolutely zero in the NFL. And now is where they may have the prize quarterback come out and have them front and center to lead this Jaguar franchise and organization to hopefully some sort of respectability. So they got to make sure that whomever they bring in is going to be, A, a guy who's going to work with the quarterback, and you would think they would bring in an offensive mind. Urban Meyer, anybody? And who knows? So he has to get this right. Not that I care about Jaguar football, and not that they're going to be of any relevancy in the next year or so, but if they bring in the quarterback and have that coach, remember, as I said earlier, the young QB coach combo, that's going to go a long way for your franchise if you're able to get that set in stone and hopefully the Jaguars can get that straight and together moving forward. 
Now, as far as the other coaches are concerned, who knows what's going to happen with Doug Peterson, as I mentioned before. I know he's going to meet with management tomorrow, so we'll wait and see with that. Also, the interim bases that were in Houston, Detroit, and Atlanta, that's all up in the air. All big question marks, but you would think that there may be other coaches or maybe a surprise team that may let go of a coach, Mike Zimmer, anybody, that could be shown the door. But we'll wait and see. It's a matter of time. But as long as I'm on right now, I'll monitor it before I sign off to see if anything else has come down the pike as far as coaching moves goes. So let's get to it, people. The wildcard storylines. But I just want to bring up two playoff storylines now because you may not hear them this week only because a lot of the talking heads and the TV shows, the radio hosts, they're going to talk about wildcard weekend. But I want to bring up an angle from Kansas City and an angle from Green Bay as we get into the postseason. As far as Kansas City goes, knowing that they rested Mahomes and company there yesterday against the Chargers, they're going to have three weeks off before their first playoff game against whomever that is. Now you got to wonder, will there be some rust? There may be some pregame jitters, but once the first ball is snapped, away they go. But you just you have to wonder about rust here in this particular case and couple that with the performance that they had in the division around last year against the Houston Texans where they were down 24-0. Now, this is a team that could overcome that. They almost had that flick of the switch mentality with all the weapons that they have on offense. But again, just something to keep in mind, knowing that they did not play in the game yesterday and with the upcoming week off now and then obviously playing the week after, you wonder if that time off is going to get the engine started a little bit later than sooner for this chief team. And if they dig themselves in a hole, anything comparable to what they did last year, will they be able to get out of it? That's number one. The second thing, as far as Green Bay goes, the path is set. There is no way that the Green Bay Packers cannot make it to a Super Bowl with the way everything is mapped out. And it's a wide open NFC. We can look at the years past where he lost last year in San Francisco in an NFC title game. We could look at a few years back when they lost in Atlanta in an NFC title game. We could look at some of these scenarios where they lost some tough playoff games. And when you look at the career of number 12 in Green Bay, this is a guy that did win a Super Bowl, but now we're going 10 years ago. This is a guy that has had this storied career. A guy that's going to the Hall of Fame. A guy that could possibly win the MVP this year. And we know how MVPs have fared when it comes to either going to a Super Bowl or playing in a Super Bowl and losing. Just ask Matt Ryan. Just ask Cam Newton. Just ask Tom Brady. The year when he lost to the Eagles. You could look at all of these scenarios now for Aaron Rodgers and he hasn't made. So there is no excuse for this team to lose on their way to possibly going to a Super Bowl. They have a one seed. They don't have to worry about going on the road. And remember, the year that they were 15-1 and in the 2011 season, they lost in the divisional playoff game to the Giants of all teams. And that was their year when they won the Super Bowl, their second one. So just because everything looks like it's ironed out and it's fallen the way for the Packer fan does not mean it's a guarantee that this team is going to go to a Super Bowl. So before everybody starts thinking that Green Bay is the odds-on favorite, and granted that there are holes in every team, Even in the Kansas City Chiefs. But with the NFC that wide open. And knowing that everything has to go through Lambeau. 
there is no excuse for this Packer team. Now, if they lose a close game, 30-27 to against the Saint team or even against an upstart, whether that be, let's say, the Rams, who knows, or even if Tampa goes in there, okay, fine. But they cannot, by any stretch, lay a big deuce there at midfield in Lambeau come the divisional round or even in the championship game. Cannot. Now let me get to my wildcard storylines, and there are three of them. The first one is, can Drew Brees and company get out of the first round after tough losses at home to the Vikings, which was a first-round wildcard game? The year before, we know about the championship game against the Rams. We understand they should have gone to the Super Bowl, but that wasn't the case. And then the year before, the divisional round against the Vikings, the Minneapolis Miracle. We think that this is going to be it for Drew Brees. They did have a remarkable season. Brees was on the shelf with those ribs. Not a lot of time to rest. They had to have him play in the game yesterday with no Alvin Kamara because they knew that they at least wanted to have an opportunity to play two home games in their building if necessary. Excuse me, because with them having the two seed, that means if they win their first round matchup against the Bears, they will host the following week. So it was important for them to have some home cooking even though they haven't been successful at home as I mentioned those last two playoff losses. But is this going to be it for Drew Brees? And will they go deep in a postseason where when you look at the last two years, they should have gone to a Super Bowl and they should have gone past the first round against Minnesota last year. The second one is can the Ravens amend for what happened last year, 14-2, and hottest team with the MVP of the league on the field, and for them to come into the postseason like Lions and leave out like Lambs, what about this year? Now, they went into the postseason last year winning 12 in a row. And I thought that that was going to be a bad sign because there was no way they were going to win a Super Bowl by ending the season winning 15 straight. I just didn't think so. All right, so now they go into the postseason winning five games in a row. And here they are on this stage against the Tennessee Titans, a team that ousted them out of the postseason, that beat them early this year in overtime where Derrick Henry had the rushing touchdown. Two teams that pretty much mirror one another. Ground game is important. Different styles by both. And defenses that can be physical, that can play a notch above, but at the same time, a notch below their reputation. I think this is going to be fascinating to see how this game unfolds. And Lamar Jackson needs to get that piano off his back and get that first postseason victory under his belt because I know after the first game against the Chargers two years ago, all right, give him a pass. Last year, there was no pass given. Now this year, again, it's going to be no pass given. Now they rushed for over 400 yards against the Bengals yesterday. I can't see that happening. Chances are they're probably going to rush for anywhere between 150 to over 200 because that's just how they're built. But this is going to be a big test for Baltimore to go into that building, to go up against Derrick Henry, to go up against that offensive line. Fascinating on all ends, but even more so for Baltimore and for what happened last year. Now to start their journey in Tennessee, the team that beat them last year and beat them earlier this year. Let's see how they fare. And then lastly... Is not Tampa, but Tampa Bay, as in Tom Brady. Are they ready to go on a Super Bowl run? Knowing that the game is in their building, no team or home team has ever hosted a Super Bowl in their own building. And they're there as a five seed. They have a relatively easy opponent when you think about it on paper in the Washingtonians. But it's not about that first game. It's about what they're going to do here after playing this wild card game and if they win can they set their sights 
on getting past the divisional round and then going on the road again to the NFC title game and taking that trophy home to bring them down to Tampa where they'll have home cooking for the Super Bowl. Because everything this offseason was all about Tom Brady. And now that the postseason is here, no Bill Belichick, there's no red, white, and blue with the Patriots. Now it's all about that pewter and orange of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So let's see what they have in store as we get into this postseason. And I'll start off with the Saturday games. I'll go in order. Indianapolis at Buffalo, fascinating to me. I think weather's going to play into it a little bit. If it's going to be cold, if it's going to be wet, if it's going to be windy. Because the one thing that the Indianapolis Colts could do that the Buffalo Bills can't is run the ball. Or at least run it with any type of consistency. And if Jonathan Taylor coming off of that 253-yard performance there against the Jaguars yesterday, if he could run for anything, I'm not going to say close to it, but if he could run half of that, keep the chains moving, keep the clock moving, get those first downs, not put Phillip Rivers in third and long, not put him in situations where Phillip Rivers, who, as we all know, is as mobile as a statue, if the Buffalo Bill offense, who I can't believe are just as potent as the K-Gun offense of the 90s with Jim Kelly, if they could keep that offense on the sideline, this could make for an interesting game there on Saturday. Now the Bills, they come in probably the hottest team in the NFL right now. And with Kansas City losing and having that long streak snapped, and I thought that was going to be a good thing, even minus the starters, because now they could just wipe the slate clean and start the postseason without having to come into the playoffs with a, or whatever it was, 10 or 11 game winning streak that the Chiefs would have had. But with the Bills now being the hottest team, you wonder whether or not they're going to be able to continue to put up these type of points or to put up the offensive numbers that they've had here over the last six games and translate that into the postseason. You know there's going to be some jitters. This team has been in the postseason now three of the last four years. Remember last year they had that 16 nothing lead in Houston, which went kaput, and it went off into the postseason wondering whether or not that this team was going to be capable of getting themselves in a position where they'll not only have a home game but have a successful postseason run. Well, it's right in front of them here because they're going to have two home games in their building at least if they win this coming week. I could see this being a close game early, but I would think the Bills will pull away. I think they'll pull away. I think they'll win this game. I'm not going to predict the score, ah, but why not? I'll throw a score out there. I'll say 31-20. How's that? So that'll be my game number one. The second game on the slate, Rams and Seahawks. I could see this being just as much as a snooze as that game two weeks ago, or really last week when you think about it, 20-9. to Who knows what's going to happen with Jared Goff? Remember, he had surgery on that thumb. Is he going to be ready to play? Is he going to be ready to grip a ball? We know the offense is going to be simplified, and it's pretty much simplified when you think about it. Everything is pretty much dink and dunk into the flat. So... Goff and company, they're not going to really stretch the field or have that type of offense where they're going to be looking to go downfield throughout the course of a game. But right now, if you're a Ram fan, you have to wonder whether or not you're going to have John Wolford on the center or Jared Goff. I'm sure you'll probably feel better with Goff, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that he's going to cure all the offensive woes that the Rams have had. As we've seen, the Rams one week, they could be flying high and look like a Super Bowl contender, and then the next week, they look like they don't even deserve to be in the playoffs. But I can see the Seahawks winning this game. I know the Seahawks, with everything that they've had this year, the way they started off their season, and Russell Wilson being part of the MVP mix, and now that's out the window. But I can see the Seahawks winning another one of those type of games. 
21-13, you name it. And in the Saturday night game, Tampa and Washington. Now, the one thing to note here, there have been games in the postseason over the years where there's been that four-win differential. When you look at the standings, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were 11-5 and and the Washingtonians were 7-9. Whenever there's a team that has that four-game differential, they generally lose in these playoff games. Think back to that time when New Orleans went to Seattle. That was the game, Marshawn Lynch, the Beastquake game. They were 7-9 and nine going up against the 11-5 New Orleans team. A year later, where Pittsburgh had to go into Denver, 12-4 and four against Tim Tebow's 8-8. Eight and eight. We know how that turned out. First play of overtime, Tebow to Demarius Thomas. Bye-bye Steelers. Remember last year, Tennessee Titans, 9-7. and seven. Baltimore Ravens were 14-2, and two, so that's a five-win differential. And what happened? 30-12 to 12 Titans. Can we see this happen this time around? Only because it's Tampa Bay, only because their offense sputters pretty much most of the time. And yes, they're able to get first downs and able to get yards. And who knows what that defensive front could do to that Tampa Bay offensive line and especially try to get to Tom Brady. And that's going to be the storyline right there. But I would think Tampa's going to do just enough. They'll also do just enough defensively because, again, that Washington team offensively, uh, they're pretty much predictable. Everything's going to be in the flat. You're going to have your draw plays. They're not going to stretch the field. They're not going to go down the field at all. So I'm going to think Tampa, they'll win a 24-13, 24-16 type of game. Sunday's games, the Baltimore-Tennessee game, I, I can't say enough about it. This could go either way. I could see this going down to the last possession. I could see this just being a just a hell of a football game. And arguably, it could be the best game of the weekend. I understand it's not the sexiest game, or people are going to look at maybe a couple other games. Maybe they'll look at the Indianapolis-Buffalo game. But this is why the AFC is fascinating. Because Indianapolis, with the old quarterback going against the young quarterback... We know about Cleveland-Pittsburgh, which I'll get to in a minute. And then now this game, I, to me, I think it's just, by far, it's the most fascinating just based on the storylines of all six games. To get right to it, it may be just enough Derrick Henry more so than J.K. Dobbins, Gus Edwards, I don't know about Mark Ingram, but also the quarterback. If by any chance Baltimore holds Derrick Henry to under- 100 yards, there's no way that they're going to win the game. And I can see Baltimore winning this game. But I just can't root for the Ravens. Ugh. Every fiber of my being. I think it's going to be a close game. I can see this being 27-24. Either way. But I'm going to say Tennessee. Chicago, New Orleans. This could be over in a heartbeat. And this is probably the more tailor-made matchup for the Saints to have. And talk about no excuse. They lose this game. Forget it. Now, as we know, the Bears backed into the postseason. Trubisky, he's another guy, hit or miss, hot and cold. Defensively, they can't show up. We know about the defensive players, but what are they going to do offensively to match against Alvin Kamara if he does come back and Drew Brees? And this team, the Saints, that is, they have to be chomping at the bit knowing that with everything that's transpired in their last three postseasons, they have to look at this as just a complete onslaught. Take no prisoners, pull no punches, 
this out of all the games could be the biggest blowout of them all. So I'm going to say, I'll say 36-17. And that's even giving the Bears a lot. Maybe, yeah, I'll keep it at that. Maybe they'll get a mop-up touchdown at the end. So I can see the Saints just cruising to victory in the second game of wild card weekend. And then the final game, Cleveland's last two playoff appearances in 94 and 2002 were against the Steelers. So there's that part of me that thinks that, oh, geez, the Browns are just due to win a playoff game. Now, mind you, I hope it doesn't come this Sunday night, as we know. But with that being said, the Steelers yesterday, as I said, they had no Ben Roethlisberger, no Marquise Pouncey, the guys I mentioned earlier, and the Browns just barely won the game. And now they have to go to Pittsburgh and face those guys fresh, which was much needed considering that they had their bye in week four. And maybe this will be the jumpstart for a Steeler team that lost four of their last five games to end the regular season. They've come to a point now where they know their opponent. They pretty much know what to expect from Cleveland. Who knows if they're going to have their full complement of wide receivers as Donovan Peoples-Jones left the game yesterday with an injury. You will see Jarvis Landry. I'm sure you'll see Richard Higgins, but who knows about Peoples-Jones. To me, the Steelers just have to slow down Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. If they do that, they're going to win the game. If they're going to be play action, if they're going to get their yards, if it's going to be anything than what we saw in that first matchup in Pittsburgh, then it's going to be a long night for Baker Mayfield and company. And I understand that they were excited and the fist bump with the first down at the end and they brought up the stupid playoff t-shirts, which meant nothing. And we could get into all that. But the bottom line is this. To me, this game is more about the Steelers than it is about the Browns. And with the 11-0 start and them faltering down the stretch and winning just an enormous game against the Colts, they must win this game. They cannot go out losing five of the last six and especially losing to the Browns after they could have tied the game and possibly won it yesterday. I'm going to say Pittsburgh wins 27-19. And that's your wild card weekend. And again, the AFC games just, there are no contest to the NFC games. The NFC games are going to be bad. Now who knows? You may get Rams and Seahawks may be a little feisty. It may be thrilling. You may have some close calls, whatever. And let's hope that that's the case. But if there's going to be an upset in any of these games, I think the one big upset that you're going to have, and I'm not going to say the four fives. I'm not going to say if... Now, Washington beating Tampa would be an upset. That would be. Baltimore beating Tennessee would not be an upset. But if you're looking for an upset, you could start with maybe Washington beating Tampa. And Chicago beating New Orleans. Those would be the two big upsets. If Cleveland beating Pittsburgh, is that an upset? Yeah, it's a mild upset. But nobody's going to go crazy. I mean, unless the Browns go in there and put up 40 points and they win 40-3. to Then you can look at that and say, oh, geez. But maybe that's more on Pittsburgh than it's Cleveland. Who knows? But those would be the two upsets that you're looking at here. I would think. Washington and Chicago. Other than that, maybe Indy-Buffalo. Only because of the way their season ended and how Buffalo played. But Indianapolis certainly is a live dog in this uh, particular contest. So we'll just have to wait and see as we get into the postseason and get ready to march to Tampa to crown a Super Bowl champion in early February. Now as we go from the pros to the college circuit, nothing other than a few plays there on Friday, New Year's Day, with both of the 
college football semi-final playoff games, there weren't anything to write home about. And to no surprise, Alabama just cruised over Notre Dame, which when we talked about last week, we knew that Notre Dame had to get some opportunities where maybe they could get some turnovers, play in a short field. We know they have a very good running back in Kyron Williams, but without having those outside threats a la Chase Claypool, they certainly are not going to be able to go toe-to-toe against the Alabama Crimson Tide, and you saw that there on Friday afternoon into the evening. 31-14, what could you say? Alabama out of the gate, 14-0. We understand that Notre Dame came back with the touchdown, which they had to go for it there on fourth and goal. They can't kick a field goal there. That wasn't going to do them any good to make it 14-7. And all that did was just have Alabama answer back in a span right after the touchdown where they had their 21-7 lead Two of those touchdowns by none other than the AP College Football Player of the Year and a one Devontae Smith, who you talked about earlier as far as maybe going number three in the draft. But business as usual for the Crimson Tide. Devontae had seven for 130 and three touchdowns. He may be a Heisman Trophy winner come tomorrow night, which I believe will be virtual with Mac Jones and Trevor Lawrence among your finalists there for the best college player in the nation. And Notre Dame couldn't muster up anything. Uh, That's all there is to it. The game was 21-7 for quite some time. Then it wasn't until Devontae Smith got his third touchdown at 28-7, which pretty much iced the game. But if you're a Notre Dame fan like my longtime friend John Irving is, I know it was disheartening to not only lose to Alabama again, but also at the same time to not have the firepower to go up against that lethal offense of Alabama, and they look like they're going to cruise to a national title, as I've been saying for the last four or five weeks. Now, when you look at the nightcap, where Justin Fields had the game of his life, six touchdowns, 385 yards, he did throw that one bad interception, which led to points on the other end for the Clemson Tigers. But after being down 14-7, they came up with 28 unanswered, They pretty much did what they wanted against that Clemson defense. And kudos to Ryan Day and their coaching staff for putting up a great offensive game plan. They were stretching the field. They were finding holes in the zone. They were able to have misdirection plays for touchdowns. The tight ends got involved. Three in the first half where two, including the one that pretty much iced it there at the end of the first half where you had the tight end Jeremy Ruckert put the game out of reach for most part at 35-14. After that, it was just window dressing. I get that Clemson had a couple of chances there to try to make it interesting, but to me, the game was out of reach. There wasn't much of a threat there, even with the numbers that Trevor Lawrence put up. And they do look great at the end of the day, 33 for 48, 400 yards, but he only had the two touchdowns. He did have the one interception, but this was all about Ohio State, Everything about Justin Fields after the poor performance that he had there in the Big Ten Championship game against Northwestern. And give it up to the Buckeyes where a lot of people didn't think that they deserved to be here, including the one coach in Dabo Sweeney who thought that this was the 11th ranked team in the nation. And Dabo needs to keep his mouth shut moving forward. We get what he's done here over the last four or five years, two national titles. He's been in this position many times over the course of the last half decade. But for him to kind of 
get the Buckeyes riled up. Right, we understand he only played six games and Clemson had much more of a longer season than they did. But for him to try to denigrate Ohio State by claiming them to be the 11th best team in the nation and knowing that they weren't formidable or even to the extent that they weren't deserving to be there. Uh, this is a college football season that we haven't seen. It's unlike any other. And he just sort of shut up and worried about his own team. And to think that they were just Swiss cheese, that defense was deplorable in the game. And hopefully this will be a lesson learned for him moving forward because chances are his quarterback is going to go to the NFL. Now he does have a one freshman who played well in that Notre Dame game earlier this year that he could hang his hat on moving forward. But at the same time, you would think that with all the bluster leading into this game, and granted, the resume speaks for itself on what he's done here, but he needs to pipe down, and hopefully this was a comeuppance for him and even for the team because that was just an abomination of a performance there, more so on the defense than it was the offense. But coupled with fields, you had the running back, Trey Sermon, who put up big numbers, 31 for 193 and a touchdown. You also had the incident there in the second quarter, which I don't want to say turned the game around, but maybe that even propelled Ohio State to give them a little bit more juice when you look at what the linebacker James Skalski did by targeting Justin Fields there on that play where he was ejected, reminiscent of last year with Sean Wade and what he did in the game against Trevor Lawrence. So a little turn of events when it came to that. But this was all Ohio State. It was all about them. Clemson were... Coming into this game riding high after beating Notre Dame in the ACC championship game. And a lot of people thought that maybe this could be another matchup with Clemson and Alabama one last time, especially with the quarterback there in Trevor Lawrence, but that's not to be. Now quickly to go back to the Skalski hit, what are you going to do? I get it's a football play. It wasn't a mean or menacing type of play. It wasn't intentional, but this is what they're going to call. I get that the regular football fan who's not really the college football fan is going to look at that and laugh, but we've seen a million calls in the NFL. Just look at the game Minnesota-Detroit yesterday when they called that roughing the passer on that sack with Kirk Cousins. Uh, An absolute joke. We get that. But what are you going to do? That's just how the rule is. They don't want players, even if it looked like a clean hit or a clean tackle, to look at it as targeting. So be it. You're not going to like it, but... It is what it is, and again, that was not the main reason why Clemson lost. It it was all about Ohio State, and let's face it, I'm not going to preview the game, but I'm just going to leave it at this. There's going to need to be a carbon copy by Justin Fields and company if they want to remain competitive in this game against Alabama. If he showed the world that his performance against Northwestern was a fluke, then he has to double it against Alabama. And that's all there is to it. That's pretty much going to be it. Because if Ohio State could come anything close or anywhere close to what they've shown there on Friday evening, then we may have a game. As of right now, how could you not pick Alabama to win the national title? And I'll just leave it at that. We could talk more about it next week because the game isn't going to be played until next Monday night. I'll do a little preview, get a little sense for everybody to gear up for the first championship event of 2021 which usually is every year in the college football national title game but no drama nothing really to get crazy about two ho-hum type games and now you just hope for a competitive national title game where you think that Alabama and Nick Saban is going to be carried off the field and another championship trophy back to Tuscaloosa and what else is new when it comes to college football 
All right, I'm going to turn my attention now just to a little baseball because, believe it or not, it is time to set the clocks because they have started where pitchers and catchers are now six weeks away. A lot of pitchers and catchers will start reporting, I believe, February 16th, so that's 43 days from today. So for those out there who are just getting started with winter and maybe are looking ahead to some warmer days and looking ahead to some crackling of the bat or just the sound of the ball hitting into the back of the catcher's mitt, well, six weeks, there's your start. But we're still a long ways off from baseball season. We're still even a long ways off from spring training. But I figured I'd just throw that out there just to put things in perspective. But that clock, as fast as it may come, and before you know it, it'll be Valentine's Day and pitchers and catchers will report. We can't say the same for the MLB hot stove. As we've said over the last few weeks, we did have the Blake Snell trade, which took place last Sunday. And then just hours after I signed off here on the podcast, you had another deal where you Darvish was traded from the Cubs to the Padres for four prospects. Also, Vince Caratini, the, or Vic Caratini, the backup catcher, which was you Darvish's personal catcher. Now, it brings the Padres closer to the Dodgers. Does that mean they're going to compete with them? Still remains to be seen. We know they have the players as far as the one through eight in the lineup when it comes to the Manny Machados of the world, the Fernando Tatises. Their outfield is a little spotty. There isn't really a guy in the outfield that you could say is a thumper. We know Will Myers plays center field. But we know that this team is all about the infield when it comes to the two aforementioned players. Also, Cronin with the second baseman. And then you have Eric Hosmer, the first baseman. But they have inched themselves a little bit closer in a National League that, other than the Dodgers, and, all right, you want to say the Atlanta Braves as well, will be the third in line as far as the ranking goes in the National League. But there's still work to be done. I'm sure they would need a closer. Off the top of my head, I can't even tell you who that closer is. We know Mike Clevenger, a guy who they brought in from Cleveland, is not going to pitch until next year. Who knows if that means the young left-handed stud Mackenzie Gore gets thrusted into the rotation to go along with those two aforementioned guys as well as Dennis and Lamette. So we'll see. But other than that, you've got nothing here in this hot stove to where you can't even get the gas to start working all you're going to hear is the click 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 from the knob when you're trying to turn on that hot stove because all we've heard are just rumors and even those rumors seem to be real meek at this point so whether that means DJ LeMahieu is he going back to the Yankees we've heard about them being $25 million off or the Dodgers in the mix the Mets you've heard so who knows? Who knows with Springer? He wants $150 million, as has been reported last week. What does that mean? Who's on the list as far as the top teams that are going to be in pursuit of the Astros center fielder? So all this is still up in the air, Trevor Bauer. We can go on down the list. And a note to the Met fan out there, and you're listening to one who's very cynical and jaded over the years, although tries to keep himself positive with the namastes and just breathe and a little kumbaya. But for the Met fan out there that's scratching their heads and maybe even pulling their hair out of their heads to the point where, why haven't we done anything? You think we're going to go into next season with just Trevor May as a relief pitcher and James McCann, a guy who's been a pretty much a backup as our two main acquisitions this offseason? Well, if you haven't been listening to me over the last God knows how long, 
We knew that this was going to be a long, cold, hard winter. That despite Stevie Cohen's big bucks, he's also looking at this from a business standpoint. This isn't a thing where he's going to go in like Monopoly money and just start splurging and spending left and right as if it's going out of style. You got to remember, no fans coming into the building probably until the summer. If that, and who knows with the way the vaccine's being disseminated and trying to get everybody inoculated, so on and so forth. But with that, and then on top of that, with the labor agreement at the end of this year, which is up, and who knows when both parties are going to be on the same page between the owners and the Players Association, that he cannot go into this thinking that, yeah, I'm going to sign George Springer six years for $150 million, or even attempt to bring in a guy like DJ LeMahieu, or hey, what about Trevor Bauer? They're not going to do that. And you know what? I think he's right for not doing that. Because you just can't appease the Met fan with all of his big bucks and everything that he said this offseason and to think that he doesn't have to go into this without a plan or to have a plan but just to spend crazily, it doesn't make any sense. And it's only going to hurt the team more. It's going to help it. So I like the way that they're going this offseason. If this was a normal offseason, and I'm not even just talking about coronavirus, but if the players and owners were to be on the same page knowing that there was going to be a deal done at the end of 2021, I'd have a better feel and also to have a better understanding as to how Steve Cohen would want to go about procuring players. But right now, it is the great unknown. We just can't look at what he brings to the table and think automatically these guys are going to come here at a low cost or a minimal cost or, hey, we only want to sign you for one year because we don't know what's going to happen after 2021. Players aren't going to think that way. You may have the one rare guy that's coming off of an injury or a guy that's looking to prove himself. Okay, fine. But a guy who's looking to get the big payday, you think they're going to come here for one year and a year that may be truncated to begin with? Not a chance. So on Met fans, you need to just exhale a little bit and look at this, not only just for the big picture this year, but the big picture going after next year. Because if there wasn't a labor agreement and we could look at it from 30,000 feet saying, okay, we could sign this guy long-term or whatever the contract they want to give... I'm sure Steve Cohen would have already secured these players by now. But if that was the case, then why hasn't DJ LeMahieu signed? Why hasn't Trevor Bauer signed? Why hasn't Marcel Ozuna signed? Why hasn't George Springer? Why haven't all these top free agents signed? Think about it, people. The landscape and the climate of the sport is right now teetering on Armageddon. And it's not even just coronavirus. It's the labor agreement. So we have to take that into account as to why this thirst for the Mets to sign these players. Uh, please, use your noodle. So let me turn my attention to basketball real quick. Now, I'm not going to get into these records, and it's way too soon to talk about this. I mean, really, Toronto's at 1-6, and six, and the Brooklyn Nets are now 3-4, and four, thinking about Yesterday, where it came down to the final shot, where Kyrie Irving missed a three-pointer, they got the offensive rebound, and Kevin Durant missed a jumper in the lane. So now the sky's falling in Brooklyn as they're 3-4, and four. they got off to that 2-0 start, and now they seem to be teetering a little bit. But I can't get crazy about two weeks into an NBA season. I just can't. Now, it was sad to see the young John Morant sprain his ankle the way he did in Brooklyn there on Monday night where he's out three to five weeks, and we all know he's one of the bright young stars in the league, so that's not good to see, especially in a market that 
is just desperate and dying to have any type of relevancy in the Memphis Grizzlies. Steph Curry goes for 62 last night. So it was good to see him get back on his top player MVP status. Not to say he's going to be the MVP, but that's the guy that we have become familiar with over the years with his three-point shooting as he was, I believe, 8 for 16 and 18 for 31 in the game. So we already have a 62-point outburst this early in the NBA season. And Paul George actually had a few things to say. And I don't want to get on this case. I'm not a big fan of his. To me, he's a little overrated. In big spots, you can never count on him. But he has had a very good start to a season. Even yesterday in the victory over the Phoenix Suns and where he scored 39 points, he got into it with Devin Booker and even Chris Paul to the point in the postgame, he said that a lot of the players have been chirping in his ear ever since the bubble with them choking, with them folding the way they did, coming into a regular season now where a lot is expected from them, even with Doc Rivers gone and Tyron Lewis the coach. Remember, you had that loss last week where they got not just blown out, they got obliterated by the Dallas Mavericks where they lost by 52 at home and they were down 77-27 to 27 at halftime. And Paul George, who has dealt with depression, he expressed that when he was in the bubble and even coming out of the bubble. And that's not something to take lightly. But he's going to get this until he gets to a point where he's able to perform and come through in a clutch. And we're not talking about a game in January against Sacramento or a game in March against the Charlotte Hornets. We're talking about when you have a 3-1 series lead or even a 3-3 series lead where you have to come through and be the $198 million man that you are. And so far, he's earned every penny of that extension that he received prior to the start of the season. But as we all know, and time and time again, he could do all this in the regular season, but it all boils down to what he does in the postseason, especially when the money's on the line. So that's pretty much it with the NBA. Nothing really to chew on here in these first couple of weeks of the season. Now, quickly, college basketball, not really to delve into there, but if you're the Kentucky Wildcat fan, you could finally scream hooray as you snap that six-game losing streak. It took double overtime and also for John Calabari to be ejected in order to get that second and elusive win of the season. But you did get that. Let's see if that could righten the ship for the Wildcats and maybe get on a path to where they could have some semblance of their former selves and not only get some winning ways, but also the Kentucky that we all have come to know and maybe not love over the years, but the world will be just right in college basketball once Kentucky gets back on the beam and maybe this will be the time for them to do so. But nothing really to discuss there. And as I said in podcast past, we'll get more into the college basketball, especially as we get through this football season. And once that's exited stage right, After the Super Bowl, we'll certainly sink our teeth into that. But I'm sure as we go along, especially with conference matchups starting to percolate, we'll certainly get into that as we move along here. Lastly, I want to talk about just two NHL notes. The season begins next Wednesday. Teams have reported to camp. We know about the 56-game season on deck, etc., etc. But two things have sparked over the last week. One was Jonathan Taze, the longtime captain of the Chicago Blackhawks, out indefinitely with an illness. Now, the illness is undisclosed. He said that prior to reporting to camp, and he hasn't reported, but he had felt 
drained, lethargic, sluggish, doesn't know what it's from. He's working with a medical team to find out what it is. Thoughts and prayers go out to him for a speedy recovery. He's 32 years old. He's been in the league a long time, 13 years. He's won three Stanley Cups. We know the resume. But with the Blackhawks going through a rebuild and not having their captain there for this indefinite amount of time, certainly does not bode well for a team that's looking to try to get themselves back, even though they did make it to the postseason last year as a 12 seed with the whole format going into the bubble there in Edmonton. And they did beat Edmonton in that first round before losing to Vegas in the next round. So they were trying to take that step ahead and not knowing when they're going to get their captain back. Just not a good look and just not a good thing for the Blackhawks. So we'll continue to keep our eyes on that and wish him again for a speedy recovery. And then you had Zdeno Chara, the longtime Bruin, who didn't want a reduced role in Boston. The Bruins were looking to resign him, but considering he had been captain throughout all these years and he is 43 years of age, entering his 23rd season in the league, they felt that they wanted to go in a more younger direction, and understandably so. And Chara felt like he still had gas in the tank. He didn't want to take that reduced role, so he ended up going to Washington to team up with Alexander Ovechkin and company. And even though his role may not be as pronounced as it was in Boston, but it looks like it's going to be a lot bigger than what it was or what it would have been if he stood with the Bruins. And Chara, what could you say? The guy has been a warrior throughout his whole career. We all know six foot nine. He won that cup back in 2011, was part of these two cup runs in 2013 and 18. And I thought he was finished. In 2018, if you watched that run to the finals where they lost to the St. Louis Blues in seven games, he had that broken jaw. He looked like a shell of his old self. He was slow, was not the same Daniel Chara. And I get that he had the bumps and bruises and everybody has it at that time of year, especially when you're going through a Stanley Cup playoff. But I just thought that he was not even just at the end, but I thought he was at the end at that point. And how could you not? He was not playing well, 41 years of age. All the miles, the tread on that tire just caught up to him. And last year, I didn't follow closely what the Bruins did. I know they lost to Tampa in the restart in Toronto during the playoffs. But at the same time, I didn't know if he was anything close. And as you get older, you know you're not going to be close to what you were 10, 15 years ago. But at the same time, you could only go by heart, resilience, guile, guts, etc. for so long because this game, as fast as it is, as physical as it is, etc. And granted, he's been a specimen throughout his whole career. But I just thought that two years ago after losing to the Blues that he was just going to hang up his skates and that was it. And you would have understood. And that's not to say that he shouldn't be playing right now, that he should just give it up. No, I'm not saying that by any stretch. And God bless him for continuing to play, to go 23 seasons. We've seen it with Vince Carter played into his 40s. We're seeing it now with Tom Brady. And not to compare those guys to Tom Brady, but the bottom line is is that who am I to tell him not to play anymore? I just thought that he was at the end of his rope. But let's see what he does in Washington. I'm sure it'll be a tremendous boost to him and to that organization and maybe try to put themselves in position to make it to a cup run. Because remember, the Capitals, ever since they finally got that elusive cup against the Vegas Golden Knights two years ago, they've been ousted in the first round back-to-back years. So let's see what that does for Char and company as we head into this hockey season. Now let me get to my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week, twofold, 
Paul Westfall, the Hall of Fame guard, five-time All-Star, three-time All-NBA first-team selection, died at the age of 70 a few days ago. He was diagnosed with brain cancer August of last year, was not doing well, didn't know how much longer it would be. Unfortunately, it took him just, I believe, I was on January 1st to start off the year. And just like we've talked about all last year with all these deaths of former players, coaches, etc. Well, the beat goes on, sadly. So thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to Westfall's family, friends, players that he touched throughout the course of the league. There were a lot of support, emotional support pouring out through social media. Also coached the Suns to the 93 NBA Finals, if you remember. Dies at the age of 70. And then Hall of Fame running back of the Denver Broncos, Floyd Little, also died at the age of 78. Another one who's succumbed here in the last couple of days. So two Hall of Famers leave us to start off 2021. And hopefully it lets up more than it continues to steamroll. Because man, I'm tired of talking about these uh, giants or legends or players of former NBA and whatever sport just going by the wayside and going to another place so both of those guys are my heroes of the week and my zero of the week goes to both Tulsa and Mississippi State for inciting a riot at the end of that armed forces bowl there on New Year's Eve where not only punches were thrown but players getting spiked in the back it was just a vicious scene there at the end of the bowl game where I believe Mississippi State won I didn't watch the game I just saw the Highlight there and watch the brawl unfold. Just uh, an unbelievable, despicable display. What could you say? And I get there's some people out there that may say, well, Jay Reels, you love the hockey brawl. Why don't you love the football brawl? Apples and oranges, my people. When you have helmets and you have the scrum and it's senseless. Where hockey, different sport, fighting is allowed. That may sound like it's me being hypocritical, but it's not because fighting is allowed in the sport where in football it's not. And to see that type of display with two schools, even if it was on a pro level, I still wouldn't allow it or wouldn't even accept it. And let's face it, if it wasn't for this brawl, nobody would have known that these two schools were playing in a bowl game. And you know damn well, other than the regions that are playing, I can give a rat's ass about the game, about what's going on. But because of that ugly display at the very end of that game, both of those teams are my zeros of the week. And I'll do it, episode 172 in the books as we kick off the year 2021. I appreciate you guys for all of your support, listening to me, listening to what it is I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports. I greatly appreciate you taking the time out to download, listen to me babble and entertain and inform you about the sports universe. And if you haven't done so already, as I said at the top, and I'm going to say it again, Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox FM, Player, even Amazon Music. All that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there and in turn generate interest to those who aren't familiar with the podcast so I could bring them on as guests. So whether that's the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, the blogger, sports writer, studio host, whomever it may be, so they could share their experiences with me so I could in turn share that with you. And if you missed on New Year's Eve, I posted a conversation that I had with one-time Philadelphia Flyer and Vancouver Canuck Daryl Stanley. He had the NHL going back into the 1980s. I get that it's more of a niche thing as I love fighting and I love the tough guys from that era or just hockey in general. But there's a lot of great nuggets in there. A lot of things that you'll definitely discern, decipher, 
and divulge everything you could get into as far as what it was like to play hockey back then, him playing in a Stanley Cup final against the Edmonton Oilers, Wayne Gretzky, that is. So please, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, I implore you to do so and subscribe, rate, and review in the process. If you want to reach out, send me a question, comment, criticism, praise, you could do so by hitting me up on any of my social media accounts, Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels podcast, which is Strictly Sports, Twitter, J Reels 1, just the number, Facebook, the J Reels podcast, or the old-fashioned way by email at the J Reels podcast at gmail.com. Please send them my way. I'll be able to follow up, and I love to go back and forth with you guys. So please don't hesitate to do so. And if you want to support my endeavor, the production of this podcast, everything from the website to equipment, etc., you could do so on my Patreon page, which is P as in Paul, A T as in Tom, R E O N as in Nancy dot com slash the J Reels Podcast. Anything you want to contribute to that, I'll put one hundred percent toward that. I'll show receipts. I'll be more than happy to do so. This isn't uh, a fly by night. Oh, let me try to capitalize and make a fast buck. No, this is. Your blood, sweat, and tears, not only listening, but your hard-earned money will go to me. And then in turn, I'll put that out towards this podcast. Because whether it's your first time, 10th time, 50th, 150th, or 172nd time listening to this podcast. If you don't know, now you know. It's in the DNA, people. I love talking sports. It's in the blood. Anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of the hardwood... The golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are. The J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beast, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. Happy New Year to each and every one of you guys. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.